My name is Scott Redman. I'm an alcoholic. Well, we started this morning off with something annoying. Let's do something equally annoying right now. We're getting to know each other. Why don't everybody stand and try to hug somebody you don't know. Just try to hug somebody you don't know. Break it up. Get a room. What the hell is going on here? <laughs> it's bedlam. Okay, Ava. See Ava. People were wandering around right here saying, I know everyone. There's nobody I can hug. So a quality problem. I go on sober vacations a lot, which I really like. And one of the things, the most entertaining things for me is uh, to watch the first three, four days. I like to watch the New Yorkers try to relax, which is really funny because they like it. You watch them in the sun and they're like this. Pissed off in paradise, you know, for a while. They're like, <laughs> and watch it. It's like watching a penny on a frying pan. They just jiggle a little bit, you know. And uh, I get, I get a kick out of that. Um, I want to do something kind of right away because they were here. Uh, a few questions which I want to uh, uh, talk about now. And uh, I want to encourage you during the breaks. If you have any other questions, if there's something I'm not getting to, if there are questions other than why don't you die, uh, please uh, put it in the basket. This is a great question. It says, does the feeling of loneliness ever go away? I love the feeling. <laughs> Hopefully, in your case, it won't go away. And I, uh, I, um, I have found, for me and Alcoholics Anonymous, that the more I have done the inventory process, particularly the tenth step, the feeling of loneliness and being cut off from my fellows, it's exactly what I was talking about about Halloween. It's exactly what I was talking about about my kid's birthday. It's exactly, uh, and it's, it's, Alcoholics Anonymous is not a woo-woo thing. It's about being in the spiritual gym. It's about exercising those muscles. It's about doing the right thing, you know. And the more that I've done that, the less disconnected I've felt from my fellows. And step six and seven have really been that bridge to freedom, and I'm going to be talking about that first thing out of the gate. Um, Someone writes that they have anger from being forced to do the Lord's Prayer uh, and feeling untrue to myself. Uh, I'm going to say some stuff, and I want to uh, start pretty much start today, uh, this afternoon session, the same way I started this morning's. Don't take anything I'm saying as an indictment of what you're doing. I have no idea how you have to bridge this gap between you and God. Okay? Um, my wife won't say the Lord's Prayer. She will not say it at a meeting. She, uh, it's, it's a Christian prayer. Uh, we could debate about that. It's, it's in the Gospels. It's either in, in, I think it's in Luke or Mark. It's one of the two. It's in, not in one Gospel and it is in another Gospel. So it's hard to say it's not Christian. Uh, uh, I, I have no problem saying it. Funny enough that this, uh, came up today because the last thing I'm going to be talking about in the, uh, in the workshop today is the section on forgiveness and the, uh, from the Lord's Prayer uh, as, as presented by Emmett Fox, which is odd. Uh, I personally feel that it has no business in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. Do I say it at meetings? Yeah, I do. I, I, I just do what I do whatever I can do to count myself in. Um, is it good for me to be honest that it's a Christian prayer? Yes. It's very sane and very honest uh, for me to, uh, to do that. Do I think that people have to say it? Me personally, I don't. If one of my sponsees felt uncomfortable, I would suggest that he be uh, uh, take a, a, an opportunity to do some prayer and meditation while other people are saying the Lord's Prayer. Uh, my wife simply uh, won't say it. Uh, she, I know she takes that opportunity. Um, my sponsor, who is uh, uh, my, I've had three sponsors in AA. The first one I had for ten years, who taught me the mechanics of everything I know in Alcoholics Anonymous. Extraordinary guy. Uh, extraordinary guy, and my uh, name Don, and my second sponsor was a guy named uh, Paul O. Uh, a lot of people know him as, as Paul Oliver. We're gonna, uh, Dr. Paul, yet his uh, uh, story is Dr. Alcoholic Addict in the book. And the reason why I mention that is because I, on the throw, on the throwaway, because I assume that's what eventually you'll do with them, 
um, that uh, was handed out it was one of the last things he wrote, which was about sponsorship, which I really love. And I get an opportunity to, if you don't have a, one, should they see you? If you don't have one, see Ava during the break. And um, uh, Paul passed away a, a bit of, over a year ago, and my present sponsor, uh, Bob B. Uh, um, but anyway, Paul used to do this thing during the Lord's Prayer, uh, which was incredible, and I found myself too scared to do it. Uh, it was too intimidating. He always suggested, he said, don't close your eyes during the prayer. He said, look at the people around you. Look at them. Make some contacts. Try to see your higher power in someone else's eyes. And which made me go like this <laughs> even more. Because it's hard. It's hard. It's embarrassing. You know? It's like I always said, my wife and I, like I would pray with a known felon, you know, a puppy strangling felon who I've just met in a public place. I'll pray for him. But pray with my wife. Ooh. That's ups- that's. A- Embarrassing, and I thought unnecessary. So, uh, um, without going on and on about it, that's that's my two cents about uh, the Lord's Prayer. Um, how do I deal with resentment when God is on uh, is the first one on your list? I'm resentful at God for what? I don't know. I mean, I've been resentful at God a couple of times for a couple of different things, and it's a really interesting thing to take a look at the defects of character that go in that are the architecture of a resentment against God. I'm resentful at God for allowing Jews to be killed. It affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex. What are the defects of character? Well, I had an incredible lesson in my life. I uh, was in my first year of sobriety, and I uh, was sponsoring... Uh, some guys, I was kind of becoming a spiritual Goliath, and uh, I uh, had a ghostwriting job at 20th Century Fox, and I um, uh, accompanied an overture to me to uh, uh, direct the situation comedy in L.A., and I, and I thought that if I got this job directing the sitcom, it really would be good for them, and I sponsor, because they'd see me prospering. It would be very good for them. So uh, I, I, my brain blew up, and I didn't get the job, and I almost drank. And uh, I went to my sponsor. I was humiliated. And he said to me, well, I guess you have the show business, God. I said, what? He said, well, what keeps you sober? I said, God. He said, so God keeps you sober, and you didn't get a show business job, and you almost drank. So I guess you have the show business God, and he has abandoned you utterly. Now, when I came in AA, I heard God getting people jobs, God getting people into relationships, God getting people parking spaces. I said, oh, no, no, not the parking space, God, not the parking space, God. What if you don't get a space? And if you have a parking space, God, and he gives you space, pass it on. No. Um, so... He said, you know, you better sit down and, and write that 10 step. I, I was, uh, I, you know, I was resentful at myself for not getting the job. I was resentful at myself for not, for almost drinking. And I was resentful at the company for not giving me the job. And, and Don said to me, you know, when you have a talk with your higher power, humbly ask him to remove these shortcomings. Humbly isn't, take him if you can, big guy. <laughs> humbly isn't, take him, you rotten. Humbly is, Pop, I can't bear this. Can you help me? I can't bear this. I can't bear doing this anymore. Can you help me? Can you enter my life the way you've entered my life with my drinking problem? And can you help me? Please. That's a relationship. I'm resentful at Scott for almost drinking. It affects, what? What are the defects? I'm ashamed. I'm ungrateful. I didn't drink. I'm a people pleaser. I have spiritual pride. I didn't get that until I came in AA and became a spiritual Goliath. How dare a man of my spiritual caliber comport himself thusly? It's hard to believe. Um, and when I sat down and I went over these, I read it to my sponsor. I sat down and he said, you know what? You're going to have to have a talk with God about what you're going to have to do to stay sober. And I did six and seven that day and I said, you know what? I'm, I'm done with show business. You want show business? Take show business. I never have to do it again, again, ever in my life for a living. Take it. You do my work, I'll do your work. 
And within three months, I was working as a cook on a catering truck. And I looked up to God and I said, I did not mean this. <laughs> no way. We've had a grotesque misunderstanding. I, I didn't even, this didn't even come up in our original conversation about this. <laughs> so in LA, when they, <laughs> when they make a movie, they hire a caterer to follow everybody around with a truck and you make, it's great money. It's Teamster dough. You're on a, on a vehicle on a movie set. <coughs> but I'm Scott Redman, right? My first day, first movie I cater, the executive producer and star of the movie was a guy who I had worked with in the business. He sticks his head on the truck that morning and he says, can I have a burrito? Scott? And I said, what's happening, babe? And he said, is this your truck? I said, no, but it's my spatula. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, I went home and I called my sponsor and I said, oh, we're really getting the gift now. We're really, it, it's, it's beautiful what's happening now. Beautiful. <laughs> he said, sounds like you've got a resentment. I'm resentful at Scott for working on the kitchen truck. It affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex. What are the defects of character? I'm ungrateful. I'm working. I'm impatient. Things aren't going according. They're not moving. Not, we got not, not enough movement here. I'm playing God. Things aren't going according to the Scott Redmond program, a fabulous program. I'm irresponsible. I made a deal with God in 6 and 7. I'm not holding it up. I told him anything. Except this. Except this. Not this. And it's killing me. And I do that 10 step and I read it to my sponsor and I say, what can I do? I'm on deck. What can I do now? I can't just keep writing and doing the same stuff. I gotta do something. I gotta use this as a lever. And I'm coming back and I wind up, I wind up I wind up serving people who had been my assistant directors and stage managers while I was directing shows. And like, and when you're catering, the, the director screams at the first assistant, the first assistant screams at the second assistant, the second assistant says, where's the goddamn caterer? Now I got a 15 year old kid in my face, and I'm thinking, someday you'll walk in and meet your new boss, it's gonna be me, and I'm gonna make every breathing moment of your existence a living hell. And I'm writing. I'm writing about the kids. I'm writing about this. I'm coming back to my home group every week and telling them the tale, the freshest tale of personal humiliation. And the guys are going, ha, 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 Great entertainment. On my inventory is a kid from the Bronx named Mark. I grew up with the kid my whole life. I went to kindergarten with the kid. The kid kicked my ass every day. He'd wake up and say, where's Redmond? Come and kick my ass. Humiliated me in front of girls at our first spin-the-bottle parties. He was the specter of loserdom in my life. The kid just kicked my ass and crushed me my whole life. There was ten resentments on my uh, inventory against him. This still was eating a hole in me. <clears throat> so... The last sitcom that I didn't get the job on the sitcom and I almost drank that I told you about, one of the stars of that sitcom, I see him in a meeting. He's new. He sees me. He hears me speak. He comes to me and says, would you do me a favor? Would you help me out with this work? I say, thank you, Father. What a blessing. What an incredible opportunity. I can't believe I'm going to help. He comes to my house. He's a little late. He comes and he says, Oh, I'm sorry I'm a little late. We're working a little late with our new director, Mark. <laughs> 30 years later, he's back. Mark's back. And he's kicking my ass. He's got my job. Um, and I just said, are you, do you have anything else to do? Get a hobby! It was just, the architecture of it was so bizarre. I just, all I could do was laugh. But you know what? I had done the inventory. I was free of Mark. I was happy, joyous, and free. I smiled an odd smile. I didn't have to tell this. I did wind up telling him many years later, because this guy did stay sober, how bizarre it was. Um, I was uh, working on the truck one day, and I uh, 
And man, I, I just, again, I'm, I continue. I'm, I'm resentful at Scott for working on this kitchen truck. I'm, event, I'm resentful at Scott for being a loser. I'm resentful. And you know what? My sons, who I was so damaged with, my sons didn't care about me being a writer and director. My younger son, Jesse, asked me to teach him how to cook. You know, so we'd go to the market together and pick out what was fresh. And I taught him how to cook French food. And it, it's like we still cook today. 20 years later, that's what he and I do. That's what we love to do together. That wouldn't have been my idea. That wasn't my idea at all. And I'm, I'm, I'm catering this movie, and uh, I look out, and the guy who had been the stage manager on the show that I didn't get, this guy Lenny, I look out, and there he is, and I went and I went uh, and hid behind the truck. And it was that time of the day, one of the jobs that you have, whether you're not you're the chef, is you clean up the garbage at the end of the meal. So I'm, I'm at the, the real glorious part of the, the job. I'm, I'm schlepping the crap, you know. So uh, I got crap all over me. I see this guy, and I, I, I go behind the truck, and I hid. And it just happened to me. One more time, like it happened to me that day driving on Halloween, the voice said, you will either go do your job or you will hide behind this truck for the rest of your life. You'll either be behind this truck for the rest of your life or you're going to go and you're going to give them a dime for their nickel because that's the contract you signed. And I did it. I didn't want to do it. It felt like I was killing part of me. And you know what? I was killing part of me, a bad part of me. And I went out and did, I started cleaning. Lenny saw me. He came over. I wiped my hand. I shook his hand. I told him how great it was to see him. He told me how great it was to see me, and I moved on with the business of life. And I know that when I walked out from behind that truck, I turned that moment. I turned those resentments. I responded to my spiritual task, and my spiritual task is to address those defects of character, leverage them with my relationship with God, and find the kind of action that's going to lead to me being free. Because I can't hide behind the truck anymore. I can't hide behind that truck and stay sober. Not, not, the last paragraph on cha in chapter three says the time and place will come where you will have no mental defense against the, the next drink, the first drink. It'll be two o'clock in the morning, your back's to the wall and the wall's on fire. You surrender like Custer. All your men are dead, your gun's empty, your horse just died, there's four arrows coming at your head and you go, okay, I give up, <laughs> you know, and, um, and it's a funny thing. One of the gifts of the 10th step to me has been, sometimes you hear people say pain is the, the touchstone of spiritual growth. I disagree with that. I think pain is a touchstone of spiritual growth, not the touchstone of spiritual growth. Right now, at, at this point in my life, I quite often find that joy is the touchstone of spiritual growth. I love this thing. I want more. The people I hang out with are enthusiastic, involved people who are doing more, who want more, who want to be on the broad highway. So I'm not saying it's not a touchstone of spiritual growth, for me, it's not the. Um, and I uh, I just I kept cooking. I kept doing it. I kept showing them a uh, giving them a dime for their nickel and showing up. And um, I had been cooking for about three years. And I got an overture made to me by a company called Ketchum Public Relations uh, to uh, for this big-time comedy writing job. And I thought by this time, I'd been doing it for three years. I was sponsoring a lot of guys. I'm really kind of a spiritual behemoth by this time. And I, um, and I figured now, if you think about it, and I like everybody just to think about me for a minute here, now the men I sponsor are really going to prosper from me getting this job because they'll see me having suffered, and now they'll see me prosper thusly. So my brain blows up before I even find out about the job. I mean, I go Yosemite Sam completely before I even get it, right? And I surrender it. I write about it. I read it to my sponsor. I surrender it. I get a call from Ketchum Public Relations. You don't have the job. I'm cool with it. I've already done the work. A little while later, I get a call from my catering company. Please go to Lake Arrowhead in the mountains above L.A. and cater some commercials up there. So I get in the truck drive up to Arrowhead, and I grab the call sheet, which gives you all the information about the commercial. And I see that the commercials are for Ketchum Public Relations. I'm feeding them now. <laughs> now I'm feeding them. I look down at the end of the truck, and there's a guy videotaping me. I said, what are you doing? He says, we're taping the making of the commercial. He's taping my humiliation. <laughs> He's taping my humiliation. He's going to go back to New York. They're going to see the tape. They're going to go, 
Is that Scott Redman with the meatloaf? That's unbelievable. That poor son of a bitch. I go home. I call my sponsor. I said, uh, yeah, we're really getting the gift now. It's uh, overwhelming, this gift of sobriety. It's a miracle. It's wonderful. And, uh, <laughs> and he says to me, you know, I guess God had uh, enough writers and he needed a few cooks today. And then he said, you know, you asked God to work, you wanted to work for Ketchum, and you forgot to tell him what you wanted to do. <laughs> I had to get a God big enough so that a lot of things could happen in his world, and I didn't get to drink. I couldn't have the parking space, God. I couldn't have the show business, God. I can't have, you know, like that woman who said to me that God probably felt I had a few lessons to learn. I don't have an earthquake God. God is God. Earthquakes are geology. It's very, very clear to me. I am convinced, and this is powerfully brought home by the events in the last few weeks and the deep wounds that we're all experiencing and are profoundly experienced in New York, that you can take any word in the Bible, in the Koran, and in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, because I've seen it done, and prove any point you want to prove. You can use the spiritual tools and use them as spiritual weapons anywhere you want. And I've seen it no less in AA than I've seen it anyplace else. I've seen people come up with stuff that is just, you go, just really will shake up. But again, I judge no man because I'm too spiritually developed. Um, so for me, it's been a very, very interesting thing to write down the resentments against God, examine the defects of character, and throw myself into working on these defects of character. And when I say working on them, I, I don't mean a frontal assault. Alcoholism really reacts poorly to a frontal assault. It really doesn't. When anybody says, I'm working on myself, I always go, oh, boy, don't, don't. I can't, I, I'm bad at working on myself. I, I gotta, I gotta help you in order to be helped. I, please, you know, grant me, grant me forgiveness. Please, Father, please forgive me. I can't forgive myself. I can't be the source of forgiveness. In the Lord's Prayer, I'm asking God for forgiveness so I can forgive other people. I'm gonna forgive other people like you're forgiving me. That's like putting myself on my eighth step list. For some people, it is the right and correct thing to do. For me, it was a disaster. I couldn't put myself on my eight-step list. I had to be as far from my eight-step list as possible. I sponsor men who put themselves on their eight-step list because they need to be there. Because they need to be there. I needed to not be there. Because I'm granted this unbelievable gift in the middle of the ninth step, and I know a new peace, a new freedom, a new happiness. Fear for, uh, freedom from fear of financial security. I'll be able to deal with situations used to baffle me. This whole suite of value-added services, <laughs> as they would say in my business, of, uh, that I get if I, if I do this, if I work step nine. So, um, that's my answer to that question. Boy, that was a long answer. <laughs> Man. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. So if you have other questions, it's really, uh, it's really, uh, <laughs> it's great, and I'd love it. So during the uh, talk, uh, please bop them in there. Um, on six and seven, there is very little written. And if you go to page seventy-five. The bottom paragraph. Returning home, we find this is after you've done your fifth step. Returning home, we find a place where we can be at, uh, quiet, can be quiet for an hour, carefully reviewing what we have done. We thank God from the bottom of our heart that we know Him better. Taking this book down from our shelf, we turn to the page which contains the twelve steps. Carefully reading the first five proposals, we ask if we have admit, omitted anything, for we are building an arch through which we can shall walk a free man at last. Is our work solid so far? Are the stones properly in place? Have we skimped on the cement put into the foundation? Have we tried to make mortar without sand? If we can answer to our satisfaction, we then look at step six. We have emphasized willingness as being indispensable. Are we now ready to let God remove all of these uh, uh, from us all, the things which have we have admitted are objectionable? Can he now take them all, every one? 
If we still cling to something we will not let go, we ask God to help us be willing. Then ready, we take something, we, we say something like this. Well, everybody, please take the, the seventh step with me today, okay? My Creator. Now that you've taken six and seven, I want you to take a two-minute break because if I don't pee, I'm going to die. (laughs) Let me do precisely that. He had me go home, spend an hour, go over the stuff, had me say that prayer. I said the prayer. I gave it some thought. And I want to tell you something for me. Six and seven are very much like one, two, and three. I took one, two, and three on whatever level I took them on when I took them on. It wasn't a very deep level at first. I personally found that my appreciation of one, two, and three has gotten deeper and bigger and broader and more inclusive the more I've moved on with the work. I mean, how could I really appreciate how unmanageable I was until I did an inventory? How could I possibly really imagine how much I needed to be restored to sanity until I saw the architecture of my alcoholism? How could I truly appreciate one and two and how awful it was until I went out to my fellows and made amends? And the amends process was not a simple thing for me. There were people that were dead. There were people who wouldn't talk to me. There were people who, uh, you know, uh, my kids and my wife, for whom saying I'm sorry would have been very inappropriate. Gee, hun, sorry about this eight-year journey to Hades. Okay? <laughs> Just, I couldn't even get the words out of my mouth. I'm sorry were the two most useless words in my vocabulary. It was like having a mouthful of ashes. I couldn't stand hearing myself say it anymore. Um, so I went through the defects of character and I had a talk with God about them. And I went through them. Some people put them all in one place, kind of take all of the defects from all the uh, resentments and make a master list. Some people go through each one. The thing I try to do with my inventory as much as I can is to keep it from becoming mechanical. I don't type mine. Some people type them because it's not a problem for them. It is a problem for me. It starts becoming mechanical if I type it. Um, when I say I am, un- I am unwilling to accept the fact that my wife is another child of God who could be spiritually sick like me, I like to say the whole defect out and use the person's name. The only time it's different is when I write it about myself. I am unwilling to accept the fact that Scott's another child of God who is spiritually sick. Not maybe is. The only one I'm positive of is me. You might be. I'm trying to stop playing God with varying degrees of success and failure. So that's what I do with the defects. And then if I go back uh, and do six and seven on fears, I go back to page 68. And on the bottom of the third paragraph, it says, we ask him to remove our fear, and direct our attention to what he would have us be. At once we commence to outgrow fear. If I go one paragraph up, the bottom of the second paragraph says, we are in the world to play the role he assigns just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on us because he enable us to match calamity with serenity. So, Father, please remove this terrible fear. Turn my attention to what you would have me be. That's what it says on that third paragraph. And then in the paragraph above, it says, and humbly rely upon him. Because if I humbly rely upon him, he will enable me to match calamity with serenity. So what does that mean for me? Let's go back to my fear list. I'm frightened of animals. I was an animal abuser, something I'm not proud of. I will tell you, I have not abused an animal since the day that I got sober. But what came out in my inventory was, is I was scared of him. I felt responsible for the death of our, our, our family pet. The shame and guilt and terror that I experienced over this is un, undescribable. And I had those resentments on my, uh, on my uh, inventory. But the thing that came out of my fear list is I was scared of them. I was scared of animals. Father, please remove this terrible fear of animals. Turn my attention to what you would have me be, which means what do you want me to do? My plan is to be scared. That's the Scott Redmond program. Be scared. Be scared counterphobic and attack. That, that's, that's the Scott Redmond program. Or repress. I'm fine with either one. Um, <laughs> God's got another plan. 
Sometimes you hear people in the program say a lot about walking through fear, walking through fear. I understand that, but that's not always the answer. Father, please turn my attention to what you would have me be. In other words, what do you want me to do instead of being scared? Please remove this terrible fear of animals. Turn my attention to what you would have me be. And my inner voice said, stay away from them. Stay away from animals. And I said, okay, I humbly rely upon you, which means I'm going to go now do it. Otherwise, I'm just asking, I'm getting, and I'm going, what else you got? Because I'm not particularly fond of that. So I stayed away from animals, and in my 10th year of sobriety, I was in an AA conference where there was this gorgeous puppy that ran after me and ran into my lap, and I fell in love with him, and I knew that it was gone. It wasn't an event. It just happened. It was a war of attrition. It got, it got starved out by my spiritual work. So the answer isn't always to walk through it in some kind of Arnold Schwarzeneggerish kind of attitude of, oh, well, I'm scared, so I'll, I'll, I'll go, I'll, I'll buy fish, I'll pet a puppy, I'll, you know... I, I could have wasted a lot of time. The inner voice said, stay away from them. What a beautiful, what a beautiful thing. What a beautiful message. It didn't say stay away from them, you schmuck. It just said stay away from them. And I did. And it got eaten up. The fear got eaten up by the right action. Uh, I'm scared of dying. Please remove this fear of dying. Turn my attention to what you would have me be. I don't know what your God's going to say to you. Maybe your God's going to say, be in today. Maybe your God's going to say, get a checkup. Maybe I, your God's going to, I don't know what your God's going to, uh, going to say. But if you're not asking, most importantly, you don't know what your God's going to say. <clears throat> so that's the six and seven I was taught to do on fear. The six and seven I was taught to do on sex is in the last two paragraphs on page 69. <clears throat> Just above it, it says, uh, where were you for? What should we have done instead? We got this all done on, pa- on paper and looked at it. Once a guy is finished with his fifth step, I'll quite often tell him to take, go through your sexual inventory and take all the things you should be doing instead. All the time you wrote you sh- what I should be doing instead and put them on one piece of paper. And that's the architecture of the man you'd like to be. That's the architecture of the person that you'd like to be now. What a beautiful thing. That's your ideal. Why not work toward that? And then it says... What a powerful message. In this way, we try to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. I usually say sex life or just life. We uh, subjected each relation to the test. Was it selfish or not? We asked God to mold our ideals and help us to live up to them. We remembered always that our sex powers were God-given and therefore good, neither to be used lightly or selfishly, nor to be despised and loathe. Whatever our ideal turns out to be, we must be willing to grow toward it. We must be willing to make amends where we have done harm, provided that we do not bring about still more harm in so doing. In other words, we treat sex as we would any other problem in meditation. We ask God what we should do about each specific matter. The right answer will come if I want it, not if I like it, if I want it. Because sometimes I'll say, Pop, what should I do? I get a message. I go, nah, if I want it. What a beautiful expression of something that never, ever happened to me before. This says I'm going to, I'm going to write about the kind of guy I want to be. And then in partnership with my higher power, I'm going to walk toward that. I'm going to walk toward that as an ideal. That never happened to me in therapy. Therapy was great for what it did, but it never worked for that. It never, I never, there was no partnering. There was no, uh, uh, there, there was no ideal. And here I'm told to express the ideal and in partnership with my higher power, I'm going to grow toward that and get freer and freer and see what can happen. So that's the six and seven that I was guided uh, to do uh, with the three sections of my inventory. I uh, uh, did that six and seven, which has become really the focal point, the, the axis of my relationship with God. My six and seven step has done more to enrich uh, my life and broaden my life than, than, than any of the other steps, uh, because six and seven is the trip back to all the steps, which is what we're gonna, I'm going to talk about in ten. I went uh, to do eight and nine, and I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know I was going to make amends to my dad. Uh, he was dead, and I uh, could not do a lot of the stuff that I heard people doing in AA. I couldn't go to the grave and talk to him, and I couldn't write a letter. And again, I don't indict anybody who does. I have a sponsor plenty of men who have written a letter, who have gone to the grave and gotten relief. I couldn't, which terrified me because I said, how is this going to happen? How am I going to? What's going to happen to me? I'm never going to be free of this. And uh, and it would come up just like like a black hole, you know. And I was resentful at myself 
for being loaded the night my father died. What are the defects? I was ashamed. I wasn't living in today. I was irresponsible. I had low self-esteem. I wasn't trusting in God. I was a grudge holder against myself, unwilling to accept the fact that I was spiritually sick. And you know what? I had unreasonable expectations. I was a junkie. What would I expect? What do I expect? What do I expect to act like? What am I supposed to act like? You know, I acted exactly like I was supposed to act, like a hopeless junkie whose father was in between me and the drink, and you know what's going to happen then. He's going to disappear. And um, I didn't know what I was going to do about it. I didn't know what I was going to do about my wife. I didn't know what I was going to do about my children. I told you about the terrible condition that they were in uh, when I came to AA. And Nancy was very sick from prolonged exposure to me. Um, and my sponsor, I was really blessed. I had a sponsor who refused to tell me how to make amends. And I know that some sponsors are instructive with people about how to make amends. And again, I don't indict that. It was very fortunate for me that I had a guy who just wasn't willing to tell me. Now, I don't know if he just did that for me I don't, or if he did it for everybody, but he did it for me. He said, I said, Don, what am I going to do? He said, Scott, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what you're going to have to do to get free of this. I had an eight-step list with names, and he said, every time you make amends, cross one out. If you run into somebody that wasn't on the list that you owe an amends to, go home, put them on the list, cross it out, just so you knew you did the right thing. You know? He said, do your job in Alcoholics Anonymous. What am I going to do about the boys? Scott, I don't know. What am I going to do about Nancy? I don't know. I don't know. Do your job in AA. Take a look at the inventory and appreciate and address the inventory as your job, your spiritual job. And that's what I started to do. And um, I've been sober for a couple of years, and I uh, was online to uh, buy lunch at work, and there was a guy in front of me at line. Actually, I was sober. I was like in my first year. And the guy in front of me, Online was like buying a can of Colt 45 with like, you know, loose change and lint and a half-eaten milk dud. You know the guy. Uh, and uh, he turned around and looked at me, and instead of in my best Bronx saying, what are you looking at? I said, how are you doing? He said, you don't know how I'm doing. No one knows how I'm doing except for the people in AA. So we went outside, we had a talk. And I went on my first 12-step call that night. I called a guy with more time than me because I, I knew enough to do that. And we were told by some people to take the guy down to County General, lovely County USC Hospital, um, and dump him off at the door. Don't go in. Don't show them that he has any resources so they'll take him as a patient. I don't know why. We didn't listen to him. We went through the whole process with the guy. About halfway through being checked in, he turns to the guy I'm with, the guy with some time, and he says, I feel like I'm dying. And the guy I'm with says to him, that's because you are. And I said, oh, no. I pulled him aside. I said, how could you say that to the guy? I'm scared he's not going to like us, you know? How could you say it with a cold, insensitive thing? What is he supposed to say to the guy? The guy's in a county facility. He's lying, saying he's got blood in his urine to break his way into the alcoholic ward. What is the guy supposed to say? It's just a bad day. Just having a bad day. (laughs) This isn't a bad day. This is what dying feels like. I'll let you know when you're having a bad day. This isn't it. But you will see men and women come into AA if you stay here for any appreciable amount of time. Again, with bottoms that will make your hair stand on end. You will look at that man or woman, he'll say, well, they're done. They're obviously done. There's no way in God's green earth that can ever drink again. And after some amount of time, if they don't treat their illness with a program of action outlined in our book, it has been my experience that they will, it will not be their bottom after a while. It will be a period of time where people were thinking behind their back talking behind their back, and they will move on with the business of dying. And it is an incredible thing to watch that mechanism. You can watch them grow toxic. I can't let a newcomer know what it's like to, at times, feel free of resentment. They have no relative experience with that. I can't tell them that a lot of the time I'm resentment-free, and when I get a resentment, it's such a distinct departure the way to, from the way I'm used to feeling that I feel as if my appendix has burst and I've gone toxic. There's no way that I can really let a person know that. That's a bizarre concept. And I had, I had virtually no relative experience to understand that. <clears throat> so a couple of years after this, I uh, was sponsoring a guy, and this was in the early, early days of HIV and AIDS, and very little was known about it. Um, at any rate, this, I was sponsoring this guy for a, a short period of time, and he 
After a while, he called me up. He said, look, if you can fit it into your busy schedule, why don't you drop dead? Get off my back. I don't want to hear about this book crap, this God crap. Take a hike till your hair floats. Leave me alone. And he ripped some people off in the program. He, um, he stole some money. He ripped off an apartment. He stole a car. God, stole a car? Uh, and I'm, I'm judging this guy. I'm not making an evaluation. I'm making an judgment. This is, that's a little, I like that little loophole. Not a judgment, an evaluation. Feel free to use that. Um, <clears throat> because for me, without 10, there is no 12. Because I will get pissed off at the men that I sponsor. There's just no question about it. So I went to my sponsor. I told him about it. And he's, you know, I'm resentful at PJ. Ripping people off in AA and making me look bad. <laughs> it affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations. What are the defects? I'm self-centered. I'm making this is about me. I'm a people pleaser. I care more about how he, I'm seen in AA than what this guy is going through. I have spiritual pride. Again, how dare he comport himself thusly after coming into contact with someone of my spiritual caliber. <laughs> I'm not living in today. I'm putting him down for stealing a car. A man lent me a car and I sold it. So maybe hypocrisy needed uh, to be on the list. And I wrote about it and I kept my mouth shut. And sometime after this, when this guy found out that he was sick, he couldn't call anyone else. He, they, they, he called the county uh, institution. They said, all we can do is take you to county general and dump you off of the door. I knew that wasn't true because I had gone through it. He couldn't call anybody else because the other people had told him what they had thought of him, had been burnt out. I was the only guy left he could call. And I got to be there. And this was at a time when... Everyone was so scared, like like you could get, you become HIV through sweat. And I'd kiss him, and his sweat would get on my lips. And I just, I knew I was going to be okay. I'd wash my lips. I was scared, and I'd, I'd write about it. I'd read it to my sponsor. I'd pray, and I got to be there for this guy. And I got to kiss him and hold him when I couldn't kiss Davy Redmond. And my father came back into my life. Not in a flash, not in an event, not that afternoon, but I found out that I could talk about him. I found that I didn't have a picture of him in the house. I wanted a picture. This happened over a period of time. My sons didn't know him because I was too scared to talk about him. I realized I had ripped my son's grandfather out of their life. So I made a point, and it wasn't hard for me to do because I was feeling it, that I could tell him funny stories. He's a pisser, my father. I could tell him stories about... And my, my sons started developing a relationship with their grandfather. Um, a couple of years ago, my sons had a horrible thing happened. They're, they're very gifted musicians and a very beloved friend of theirs at 19 years old passed away suddenly and unexpectedly in the middle of the night from a, a physical malady that no, nobody knew he had. 19-year-old kid. And my son, Micah, came to me and he said, Dad, what am I going to do? And I told him what you told me. I said, son, I, I got to do three things. I got to make sure there's no resentment blocking me from the person who's gone. I got to make sure to not end the relationship just because they've carried their light into another room. And I got to make sure not to be an opportunist, not to use this death for my own self-pity and to get a Lego. Where do those ideas come from? And I sat in that shul and with my arms around my sons and felt the presence of my father as powerfully as I've ever felt it in my life. <clears throat> because of addressing his death, of approaching six and seven, of leveraging that to bring God to bear in my life and getting and getting that kind of freedom. Um, I uh, want to talk about my marriage and and, uh, and my sons. I. Uh, <clears throat> I, you told Nancy and I not to get involved in our first year, and we didn't. Um, we didn't go near each other. I mean, we didn't even talk to each other. We were so broken. We were just completely psycho. Uh, I was talking to somebody earlier. I haven't remembered this in quite a while, but I, I will now teach you the Scott Redman uh, couples workshop in two seconds. It'll just take two seconds. My idea of working on a relationship is to talk to you until you change your mind. <laughs> is to talk to you until your eyes roll back in your head and you keel over, and on the way down you go, oh, okay. <laughs> so that's what I'm bringing to the party. That's the magic I'm bringing. <clears throat> I don't know how to fight. I have no idea how to fight. 
I either scream until my wife shuts up or I cry until she shuts up. Either one's fine. The tyranny of helplessness is fine. I have no problem with that at all. So I'm either screaming or I'm, uh, and I like to loom. I'm a loomer. I like to loom with a light behind me and get her in the shadow. It's like total eclipse of the Jew. I like to get her right in there. And um, if I can work like a scream, a cry, and a loom in a one fight, that's a trifecta. It doesn't get a whole lot better than that. So these are my skills. These are my f- fighting skills. <laughs> and um, I'm either screaming and retaliating or I'm repressing and eventually climb up into a clock tower with a high-powered rifle and carry the message that way. (laughs) I got no skills at all. I I can't, and I can't, I mean, I'm so sick, I can't even, I can't even clean my house. can't even clean my house. I'm standing next to ten men, ten years younger than me, my whole life, and I'm saying, I wonder what it feels like to be a grown-up. What a crappy way to live. You're a dollar short and a day late every day. You're never in your life. You're going to start having a life when X, Y, and Z happens. I never felt like a grown man until I came into AA and started doing this work because I wasn't doing what grown men do. Grown men clean up after themselves. It's been my experience. Grown men make their bed. That's what grown men do. But I I can't even do that. I think somewhere in the back of my twisted mind that a certain amount of housework should equal a certain amount of sex. That there should be like... Conversion tables on the back of cleaning products of housework to sex. Um, <laughs> I, I, I wish I was lying. And, um, and so I'm doing the housework and I'm going to my wife. I'm finished. And she's saying, yeah, yeah, really finished. More than you could possibly know. Um, so I had to, I had to start, uh, I had to start doing that work and I, I, uh, we were just broken, and I'd write resentment after resentment against my wife. I'm resentful at Nancy for not being sexually available. It affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex. What are the defects of character? Lust. No, no, really. No, really. Lust. Now, lust is an interesting defect. It's kind of like gluttony. There's nothing wrong with wanting to have sex, but the minute that I attach power to sex, it becomes lust. There's nothing wrong with being hungry. Most then maybe... <laughs> Some defects are getting anchored to the natural feeling of being hunger, and you could call it gluttony. Maybe. Okay. So, I got these problems, and I got these problems, and they're really bleeding into my sobriety. They're moving forward, and my, my home life is smashed. I mean, we have these insane rules in our house. My kids are not allowed to eat sugar, watch TV, or curse. That's the rules in my house. But dad's being carted away by the paramedics for overdoses. And so, so here's your granola. Now get into the car with Dr. Death. You know, and my wife's going, hope you live. And the kids are going off with me. I mean, it's completely psycho. Absolutely psycho. But you can't control what's in the middle. So you just try to make the rotten skeleton of a turkey night with nice cranberries and everything around it. So, um... My wife reached out to the Al-Anon family groups, uh, which I'm just so grateful for. I don't need my wife to be an Al-Anon, but I sure do enjoy it. And she got this incredible sponsor named Ruby, who she still has. And uh, Ruby, uh, the boys would come over, and Ruby would give them a big bowl of M&Ms and sit them down in front of a TV and put on the love boat. you know. <laughs> and Nancy would go, ah! <laughs> and Ruby would say, Stop helping your kids. You're killing them. <laughs> Stop helping them. And you'll forgive my, forgive uh, one, one bad word I'm going to say. One day Milton called the boys over. Milton was, uh, Ruby's husband, he's sober 20 years. And he, he called him over and he bent down. He said, boys, your parents don't know shit. And, <laughs> and they went, Oh my God, we suspected, but it's been confirmed, and oh, and like, they just went nuts. First of all, he cursed, which was like huge to see a grown-up curse who didn't have a needle in their arm, and um, <laughs> and uh, it was just, it was, you know what? It was light and polite. We had to get lightened up. We needed you to pry open our jaws and spit life back into us, and that's exactly what you did. You know, Ruby has given my sons five bucks on their birthday their whole lives. They're 20 and 23. They still get their five bucks. They love Ruby. 
They love, love, love her, you know. Um, and uh, one day I came home, and Ruby is just a service gal. And I came home, and my wife had a bolt of gingham and a bunch of ticking, and she was stuffing gingham swans. And I said, oh, the arts and crafts have begun. This is my nightmare that we're going to hook a rug. You know, I, I knew that this was going to happen. You get a big book and a loom. You know, I, I knew somewhere. You know those women who wear jewelry that look like from the, like a Micronesian nut-gathering tribes? You know, they, these are the kind of, of Jewish women I grew up with. So I know that that's where we're headed, you know. And I just was like, part of me just went, oh, no, no. And Al-Anon's, when they, they have a function, their centerpieces are like Rose Bowl floats. They're like, you know, they're mechanized. They have water fountains. I mean, they like, they get very, very busy, very busy. And, um, and, and the funny thing is, is now, uh, when Nancy wants to let me know that a newcomer's getting it, she always says to me, she's stuffing swans. She's stuffing swans down. It's our, our little shorthand. It really was incredible. And um, at about five years of sobriety, I was driving home. I had a, uh, had a, a dream job for me. I was directing TV shows at uh, Universal. And I just want to tell you that uh, I got this job. And I was over in the lot. And this grip, grip is one of the guys on a movie set who takes, just make sure everything is right for the shot. And he walked up and he said, Oh, you're that caterer. You're that sweet caterer. What are you doing on the lot? And I said, I'm directing the show on stage 46. He said, did you go right from the catering to the directing? Did you, you know? Um, <laughs> and uh, this first show I directed, they brought a guy in to be the assistant director. And uh, he walked in and he looked up and I saw his eyes. He went, the caterer. Oh, no. It's this, this is one of these kids that had been screaming at me, and I didn't have to get even with him, but I really enjoyed that little shudder that went through his body. I like that. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> I was driving home, had a great job, driving a new car, five years sober, things are moving forward, and I realized while I was driving home that I was scared to go home. I was scared of my wife. And I, uh, and that realization really terrified me. And I started realizing that when my wife came home, I was looking around the house like, are the kids watching the right thing on TV? Is everything cleaned up? Is everything okay? Very much like dealing with untreated alcoholism. Is everything okay? And I realized I was terrified of her. And I sat down and I did the, uh, wrote the resentment against my wife, wrote the resentment against myself for being scared. And, um, I did six and seven, and what came out in the wash when I did my six and seven step is that the message to me about my defects was really clear. It didn't say retaliate. It didn't say repress. It said overcome a fear of confrontation and tell her how you feel without telling her what to do. Fear of confrontation. Fear of confrontation is not repressing. It's not retaliating. It's overcoming a fear of confrontation, telling somebody how I feel without telling them what to do. And I learned it from my sons. And I'll tell you how. I was, um, when am I supposed to stop? Um, I was in my first year of sobriety and I uh, was making my sons um, lunch. And I said to Micah, what do you want on your hot dog? And he said, I want mustard, onions, and lettuce. And I said, lettuce? And he said, oh, oh okay, I don't want lettuce. And he walked away and he came back about 45 minutes later and he looked me directly in the eyes and I'm not altering one syllable. He said, I will never again allow your opinion of what I want affect what I ask for. <laughs> so I asked him to sponsor me at that point. <laughs> see if I could get a little help. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> what's that? Where the hell does that come from? Sometime after that, um, Jesse, a uh, little boy, he broke his uh, wrist in a growth plane. And if you know the way kids develop, a growth plane is cartilage, which is going to turn to bone. And if it gets disrupted, it's very important that once it's set, it gets left alone, because if it's disrupted improperly, it's not going to grow back right. So um, I took him to the hospital, got him fixed up, schoolyard accident, comes back. He and his brother are beating the crap out of each other in 10 minutes, because, you know, the, the cast is a weapon. 
you know, again, the cast is not a medical thing. It's a, it's a weapon. And for a younger brother, it's not a bad weapon to boot. So um, I told Micah that this could not go on. He couldn't do it. And he did it again. And it was one of those things where I did what you guys have done for me. What has Alcoholics Anonymous given me as a result of the steps and as a result of the inventory process? Bill said it on an organization level. When the trustees would pr- would push for more rules, he would always say to them, they don't need rules. They've got alcoholism. They have alcoholism. Believe me, alcoholism will school them. Alcoholism will rein them in. They don't need the rules. And, of course, he was so right. And I have found that to be true in my life, that I have alcoholism, that if I walk the line, that if I, that if I stay on top of it, that I've, I ask God to present himself in my life and I do that work, it's going to do it for me. And um, I, uh, I got sensible, consistent, flexible limits. Sensible, consistent, flexible limits. What an incredible idea. The guys that I know in AA who I've asked for help have done that for me. They don't write things in stone. They, if they do, they got a, a racer. They, they, uh, um, they, the guys who I hang out with in Alcoholics Anonymous are seekers, are changers. Um, and, um, so I got in my son's face and I let him know that he could not do this. He couldn't do it. This is not something I could repeat 11 times. If this thing got disrupted, we were in real big trouble here. And I screamed at him. I yelled at him. I said, can't repeat it. That's it. Walked away from me. Slammed his door. He slammed the door. <laughs> slammed that door. So now I got the dead tick going, you know. Slammed the door. So I go to the door and I open the door. And before I can unload on him, he looks at me and he says, hold it. I didn't say you were wrong out there. You were right. But a big guy just got in my face and screamed and yelled, I'm not saying you're wrong. Don't tell me I can't be angry. (laughs) What's that? What the hell is that? That's overcoming a fear of confrontation and telling somebody what you need without or how you feel without telling them what to do. An expression of a feeling without playing God, because i got to quit playing God, and my kid taught it to me. What a beautiful demonstration of it. You were right, Dad. I shouldn't do that. Don't tell me I can't be pissed off. You're scary and large. <laughs> true, 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 true. And what a blessing, because I, and for me, the model, the model of parenting, the model in relationships for me has really been a result of, of uh, that kind of sponsorship. I've really modeled one for the other. They've fed one another. You know, I, uh, you know, it's an incredible thing. You know, you don't have to, you can get a designer sponsor here. You can get anybody you want. Doesn't matter. If you don't allow yourself to be sponsored, it just, it doesn't, just does not matter. You know, who's your, who you're, there are people who tell them, that say I'm their sponsor. This is my favorite. A guy walks up to me in a meeting years ago and he says, you know what, you really haven't been there for me, and I'm going to have to move on. I just want to thank you, but i got to cut it loose. I had no recollection of sponsoring the guy. No recollection of ever being asked. No recollection of ever agreeing to sponsor the guy. The guy was the kind of, he was an incredible blowhard who, when he would share, people would take their own life. Uh, So I missed, I, I was so grateful to be fired by this guy, and I had never sponsored, you know, I, I, I missed the whole thing. It was great. I have a friend of mine who a lot of uh, people here know who, um, he was at a meeting one time. He speaks a lot. And this guy walked up to him after he finished his talk. And this guy walked up to him and said, you look really familiar. And my friend put my arm around him and said, that's because I'm your sponsor. And, uh, <laughs> and what had happened was the guy, when he was new, about eight months before, had been to a meeting where my buddy was talking and got very excited about the talk and ran up to him and asked him to sponsor him. And he said, yeah, never called him again. So that's why he looked so familiar. He was, in fact, the guy's sponsor. So I really like that a lot. Um, so uh, that's been an incredibly powerful uh, example that my sons have given me. Uh, overcoming a fear of confrontation and telling somebody how I feel without telling them what to do. So I did my inventory. I sat down with Nancy and I said, I'm scared of you. I need to have an open and honest conversation with you. What do you mean you're scared of me? I don't know. I'm scared of you. I'm still running around trying to do this. Well, you do this and you do that. I, I, so I, I'm not arguing with you. I think that's true. But I'm scared. 
Well, what do you want me to do about it? Nothing. I'm scared. I threw it on the table. And by throwing it on the table, I started the process of being able to take a look at it and being able to take action on it. And then, you know, and then I went over the top and like started saying, you know, I'm scared you're not going to do what I'm telling you to do. <laughs> Personal problem. Um, but, uh, but we really started making some progress then. And then we went, uh, and, and we continued to argue, continued to fight. And we started trying to have a better quality of fight. We stopped, uh, stopped screaming, stopped crying, cut back on the looming. Um, and we, we, we tried to really, um, uh, have, and my wife was incredible at it. And, and this is how she taught me how to do it. My sons would start fighting, physically fighting. And I would, uh, because of my incredible guilt about being a lousy father, I'd pull them apart and think that I was helping them. And Nancy would say, you never let them finish. We don't finish. No one here finishes. How many times have I said to myself, how did we wind up here again? We always wind up back here. It's like we never move. We never get any movement. And what my wife was pointing out to me was, because you're not finishing. And I, you know, we'd start to fight and I'd get louder and louder and she'd go, okay. (laughs) And then just stay on it and talk about it and keep putting it out there, you know. And if the alcoholic, if you talk to them and ask why they've done it again, and if they stick with you and they're honest and you're not angry and you're not accusing, odds are they have no more idea than you. And, 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 and a, a meeting can start taking place, a real relationship, a real meeting. And um, and I started letting my kids finish fights, and I want to tell you, it was like somebody, it was like someone ripped something out of my body. I had it used to sit on my hands, and Nancy would say, "Trust them, trust them, let them do this," and they did it, and they have an incredible relationship today, absolutely remarkable relationship, you know. Um, and and we uh, and we would continue to have these explosions, and then our sexual relationship would diminish, and then I'd feel punished, and she'd feel something, whatever I decided she was feeling, because of my mind reading skills, and I'd have to go and I have to go back and do sexual inventories. And what should I be doing instead? What I should be doing instead is be grateful to be available. Be grateful to be available. What an incredible idea! In the old days, if I'm available, then we, it's on. Even if I'm alone, doesn't matter. It's lonely, but you know. <laughs> and the results are very unsatisfying for me. Just to be grateful to be available, to not be loaded on coke, to not have to drink, just to be available, to be loving, to be caring, and to find some other way to express it. What a remarkable gift. What should I be doing instead? Have an open and honest conversation with my wife. Now, when I used to express my feelings, I wasn't expressing feelings. I was giving you a list of things to do because you've got to do something about each one of my feelings, all right? But to really express my feelings and to have somebody else express their feelings, that started being incredibly productive. And we continued to fight. And we go to therapy. Now we're in therapy. And we work out great things in therapy. And then go home and throw a Buick at each other. Just we, we and, and what was happening was, is the same thing that happened to me in therapy before I got sober. I was uncovering, discovering, and I wasn't applying. It was a straight line between us and the therapist. And there was no spiritual element. There was no moral application, moral psychology. I'm an alcoholic. I don't get movement without the moral application. I just don't. And again, I've used therapy for many things in in sobriety, very effectively. I had to go into therapy when I was leaving my first uh, sponsor. I had to leave my first sponsor for a lot of reasons, and it was unbelievably hard. It was the hardest thing I've ever had to do in AA, uh, besides stop drinking, that damn not drinking stuff. Um, and I went to a, a therapist who was extremely helpful to me. And But it wouldn't have been successful had I not reached out to members of Alcoholics Anonymous and, and gotten the help that I needed. Um, and so what my sponsor kept saying to me was, the longest trip in your life might be the three feet to the other side of the bed. That could be the longest trip that you have in your life. How are you going to do that? How are you going to step from the boat to the shore? How are you going to make that journey across? And that, you know, in, in your life, that might not be the journey across the bed. It might be the journey across the table. It might be the journey across the phone. I don't know what it is for you in your life, but I know that the journey is possible. And I know for me, it was informed. You see, I get, I get understanding in therapy. I get forgiveness in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
Understanding, understanding myself is very, very helpful, but it is not a solution to my problem. Knowledge, self-knowledge availed me nothing. Information about you in the end result availed me nothing. I get understanding in, in therapy, which is, again, a good thing. But without forgiveness, it's nothing. So, um, and, and Paul would say, he would ta- he wouldn't say, he would tell me how he and Max prayed together. They prayed together. They loved to pray together. And I would think, how nice for you. That's what newcomers say to me sometimes. I love that when a new guy says, I'm so happy for you, which usually means, I hope your face burst into flame. Um, (laughs) Usually it means I'm happy for you because it's not going to happen for me. Take a hike. Leave me alone. Sometimes it means that. And um, we we were in this bizarre situation of loving each other and um valuing each other and being in a position of being tremendous help to a lot of other people and not being able to show that simple love and understanding and kindness to each other. How crazy is that? You know what? If I'm living with the enemy, I ought to move. Eventually. Eventually, you know? And out of desperation, out of facing divorce in sobriety, you know, I'm... You know, I'm not supposed to be experiencing this. I'm now six, seven years sober. I'm down the line. I'm sober. I'm sponsoring lots of guys. I'm active in my home group. I'm talking in AA. This isn't supposed to happen to me. Who is it supposed to happen to? You know, to human beings. And it's happening to me, and I'm terrified of my wife, and we're not getting anywhere, and we keep coming on, and we're developing tools, but we don't have a moral application for them. And finally, out of desperation, as I said, I will I will get on my knees in the middle of Grand Central Station with a known, felonious, puppy-strangling guy who I know for two seconds. Sure, let's do the third step. Let's go. But, but uh, pray with my wife? That's embarrassing and unnecessary, you know. And if you're a puppy strangler and you knew, welcome. We got a guy who's strangled two puppies, I guarantee you. And Nancy and I finally started holding hands and we started not working the steps together. We started saying, please, Pop, please help us. Can you help us to have a sense of humor? Can you help us to stop taking everything personally? Everything personally. Can you please help us keep it light and polite? Can you please help me remember that this is my wife, my lover, my buddy, my bride. This is my confidant. This is my friend. This is not my adversary. Can you please help me? You know, one day Nancy, and we started, it started getting, we really got so much success in this. One day Nancy said, uh, she said, oh, please, Pop, help us, despite the fact that, that I'm, I'm a wet blanket and he's a windbag. Uh, <laughs> and it was said in such a beautiful way. Then I said, help me do whatever my wife tells me to do. Ah! And I, but we'll say stuff like that. We'll say stuff like that. And it, it's, been, it's been an incredibly productive thing as a result of going back. What should I be doing instead? That's been a, a real focal point of that sexual inventory for me. What should I be doing instead? Tell your wife you're scared of her. Have an open and honest conversation. Go to therapy together. Pray together. Whatever that's been. So, anyway, it's time to take a break, and I don't have to go to the bathroom. So, uh, I'll see you in a couple of minutes.